All right, so as we continue on in our uh, sermon series, Wildfire, I'd love for you to pull out your Bible, join me in Acts chapter 17. But as we prepare to go there, as you're perhaps flipping there, I want you for just a moment to imagine that you are in the ancient Mediterranean streets. Imagine a scene like this, which is overlooking the great city of Athens, and you're walking from one community into Athens to escape perhaps some persecution like Paul did from the Thessalonians, and you walk in to see what God would have for you, the people that he would have you meet. As you walk up and down these streets with your legs burning from navigating these narrow corridors and these uneven steps, you would begin to see something. If you were to enter the city of ancient Athens, you would see over 30,000 idols. The great city of Athens was known to be a crossroads of converging worldviews and philosophies. This is the birthplace of Socrates and Plato. It's the place where people would engage the most of their day discussing what could be, what is, what's true, what's not true. What could we glean from other faith traditions? What gods could we worship so that our lives could be best lived? And because of this convergence, the people had come to a place where they said, let's just take all of it. While we might disagree, let's open up these streets to worship every god. One ancient writer says that there were some 30,000 statues carved out of wood, stone, and metal, which represented the gods and different things that we should worship. Not only did the people worship uh, specific Roman and Greek gods, but they would worship attributes like virtue and reason. There was even spaces in the streets where they would set up altars to unknown gods just in case they missed one. In fact, there's a great story where at one point, some people released some sheep into the community and they said, let's just let them roam until they die. And wherever they die, if it's in front of a statue or an idol, we will sacrifice that to that God to please them. But as those sheep wandered the streets, some would die not in sight of a single idol. And so in those places, they would say, this is an altar to an unknown God. Imagine walking into a place like that. How would you possibly begin to share the good news of Jesus in those streets? How would you walk into this place and, and begin to engage with people who spend their lives arguing different philosophies and worldviews? This was the case this is what Paul was walking into in the text that we read today. As he came in to the city of Athens, he had this desire to bring the good news of Jesus. But he had to look for a way and for a place so that he could know how to enter into the conversation in a meaningful way. As Paul entered into the city of Athens, we see that it's very different than the other cities that we've uh, studied that he's been in so far in the book 
of Acts because Athens isn't predominantly filled with Jewish leaders. We'll read in our passage that, yes, he does go and interact with some people, some Jewish people in the synagogue, but, but this isn't the majority. Again, we have people coming from the crossroads of, of Rome and Greece, people like Socrates and Plato who have influenced this place for hundreds of years. And, and so as he comes in, he has some interesting work to do. So let's read uh, Acts chapter 17, and we're going to start in verse 16 and continue to 34 to see what Paul went about doing. We read this when he enters into Athens. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, this is some of his friends who have sent him on before to sort of rescue him from the troublesome nature that he had gotten himself into. It says he was greatly distressed. Why was he greatly distressed? He was greatly distressed to see that this city was full of idols. So he went into the synagogue and reasoned with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they had said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, Paul, and we would like to know what they mean. Luke gives us a clue to what's going on here. He says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And so Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of the heavens and earth and does not live in your temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and histories and the boundaries of their land. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of our own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, some image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you about again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people, though, became followers of Paul and then believed. Among them was Dionysus and a member of the Areopagus and a woman named Damaris, 
and a number of others too. You know, as I sat down and was, was reading this passage this week and considering uh, this great ancient city of Athens, I was struck by the similarity of that city long ago to the city of Abbotsford. Now, the setting isn't exactly the same. Certainly, we're not in the Mediterranean, and our, our, our weather perhaps is a little different. We have plumbed uh, toilets. We have health care. We have hospitals in a different way. And so things were different, certainly, on the surface. But when we look to the undercurrents of the city, we're very similar we too live in a multi-ethnic trade city full of conflicting worldviews. All around our city, we have temples of worship to other gods other than our own. And while we might not have carved idols that are lining every street, we certainly have idol worship taking place every day. Tim Keller defines an idol this way. He says, an idol is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. It's anything you seek to give you what only God can give. He goes on elsewhere and says, look at what your biggest building is in town and you'll probably find a temple of worship too. We love sports captivates our hearts and our minds and sometimes we would rather do that than engage with god that's an idol that's why we have a huge arena in the middle of town there's many other things i think when we consider an idol worship as being us thinking about or being captivated by or spending our time with anything other than god or before god it's really easy to see that we're a city that struggles with this issue too in about 2,000 years, not all that much has changed. Perhaps we've just gotten a little more subtle. Instead of worshiping those statues, we worship things like our possessions, our bank accounts, our families even, or maybe next weekend's adventure and what we're going to do. And so, you know, when we, when we consider that, if we were to spend time walking around town, it would be easy for us to resonate with Paul and be distressed. I mean, I had the chance uh, this weekend to walk around downtown, and it was amazing as I looked at the people who were bustling around town, as I saw and overheard bits of conversations. It was easy for me to come to this place where I said, man, there's a whole lot of people who need Jesus in this city. We actually have a false sense of security amongst a lot of Christians in our community. We were told that Abbotsford was the Bible Belt of BC, and for a long time, we were a city that was a majority Christian. This isn't the truth anymore. We're a much more pluralistic, multi-ethnic, multi-worldview city than we ever would have dreamed. And that leads me to ask the question, how can we reach our city in the name of Jesus? As a church, if we're saying we want to lead people to be passionate followers of Jesus, everywhere we go when we encounter someone who's not one, we should be asking, how do we engage in this? What are we going to do? But it's a challenge, for sure. How do we go about doing this? Well, well fortunately, we have Scripture. 
that gives us a picture. And I actually think Paul gives us this wonderful template that if you want to lead someone to know Jesus, if you want to engage in bringing his good news to our community, that you can follow too. As I look at this passage, I see three main things that Paul does that I think for a long time Christians have forgotten to do. How do we engage with those who need Jesus? Well, the first thing we need to do is praise what is good and make connections. There's this interesting thing that happens with Paul. As he walks through these city streets, we see that he becomes distressed naturally. There's all this pagan worship that's, that's taking place, worshiping intellect and reason and different gods from Roman and Greek backgrounds. There's sacrifices taking in the place in the street. There's incense burning everywhere he goes. His senses are assaulted. But what does he not do? He doesn't come in and rage. He doesn't come in and shove things down their throats. He first makes a connection with every person he meets. Now, this isn't to say that he doesn't like or that he likes the idolatry again. He, he, he understands what Isaiah talked about when God said, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will have no other, no, no one else will have glory other than me. But while Paul's spirit is provoked, he says, I want to see what's good in these people. I want to make a connection with them so I can speak to a place that's deeper within. And so we notice in verse 22, there's this thing that, that Paul says, and, and for us today, it might seem like a negative, but in their day, it was quite a positive. He says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, we're allergic to the term religious. Like, we're, we're often, hey, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Like, don't, don't lump me in with one of those Bible thumpers. Don't make me sound like I am a crazy kook. I, I follow Jesus, but hey, I'm not religious. Well, we see that as a very bad thing, but the Epicureans and the Stoics of Paul Day, they were really proud of this fact. They went, hey, we know and engage in the best of religion. We take this seriously. It's our life. As Luke gave us a snapshot in that little bracketed verse, this is what they do. They hang around and do nothing more than debate and engage with religion. And so what Paul does is he comes to these people with whom he strongly disagrees, but first he makes a connection by saying, hey, I'm really proud of you guys. I really like what you do. I like how you have a commitment to the truth. I like how you're really engaging in reason. I like how you're really pursuing what is true and trying to live after it. You're serious about these things. And I think if we had all of what Paul said, he might have said, and I am too. We know that Paul was a great study of philosophy and scripture. We know that he took this life of being devout to God very seriously. And so this is the thing he pursued. So while, yes, Paul is concerned with their idol worship and was undoubtedly eager to share the truth, because we see that he flips right into that right after, he first begins by breaking down walls between him and his audience. I think too often we skip this step as Christians because our first 
sort of reaction, the first thing we, we, we feel or we see as we engage with the world around us that rejects God is that we want people to know the truth. And that's good. Don't, don't get me wrong. That, that, that inner desire to engage people with truth is wonderful. But rarely do we get very far if we just start coming at them and pointing out this is where you're wrong, this is where you're wrong, this is what you're doing, this is what you're condemned for, here's what you should be shameful about, here is why you're guilty. My personal experience is that when I have come in different times of the past towards someone in this sort of uh, antagonistic approach, yes, maybe with the truth, but, but with the wrong heart, is that I've ended up actually shutting down conversations. I've had people who I think were actually hungry for the truth who have turned their back and ran all because of my disposition towards them. I think this is the reason why often things like just door-to-door evangelism or leaving tracks places ends up doing more harm than good in our society today. Because what happens when we do that is people feel reduced. We reduce people when we just fire at them with the truth because now they think that we see them as a project and not a person. We need to take into consideration the complexity of people's lives. And if we really want to break in and share the good news, I think we need to at least take time to acknowledge a little piece of who they are. Perhaps even encourage them as we step into relationship. You know, I think one of, perhaps one of the best things we could do is go up to our friend who's an atheist who we're looking for a door and say, hey, I'm really impressed with how serious you take all this stuff. I love how much you want to know the truth. You know, I love that you, you take time and you read different points of view. I, I think that's really good. Can we talk about that a little more? That's a whole lot better than walking up to them and saying, you're an idiot, you don't understand reason, didn't you know Jesus is the truth? Both are true. But which way would we want someone to go about it with us? Think about perhaps what your story is too. What was the opening that you had to someone teaching you the truth about the person of Jesus Christ? My suspicion is that most people's story would be that someone cared enough to make a connection with us and then share from a place of love and respect the truth about the person of Jesus. It wasn't a confrontation of ideas or worldviews. It was an expression of love and grace, an offer of what is true and good, something that could bring peace and hope and joy and love, meeting the people where they're at. This is what Jesus did. If you study Jesus and how he went about sharing the truth, you see that he would often come with a sense of humility and grace as he walked into a room. You would see that he was attentive to the person first, and he would come alongside and make a genuine connection. One of my favorite stories is Jesus and the woman, at the, the Samaritan woman at the well. He came and made a connection with her that was one that she had not experienced, one where someone genuinely was willing to stick their neck out for her 
by caring about who she was and meeting her in a desperate and lonely place. Jesus says, I see you. I love you. Let's connect on that first. Over the last number of months, I've I've brought this idea up to our church time and time again. That one of the things that's working against us as followers of Jesus is that people know us for what we're against and not what we're for. I see it time and time again. I, as I chat with my, my non-Christian friends and we spend time together, they often uh, first get their defense up when they think any part of me is going towards what I'm against instead of what I'm for. And it's not to say that there's not things that we should be against. It's not saying that there's not truth that confronts terrible things in this world that we need to be battling against because there's a spiritual reality to the world in which we live. But in how we go about it, we can make a huge difference. And so I encourage you to take time. Tell your activist friend that you admire their passion or compassion. Tell that father or mother who's just too busy that you admire their love for their kids or their desire to uh, make their time matter to be a person of influence. Doesn't mean you have to start out by compromising on what is true. Simply affirm the person, draw them in, and then you open the door to being able to engage with them. And that's the second thing that I really see Paul does is that he engages with the people in a relevant way, in a way that is meaningful to them. He said in verse 23, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now Paul doesn't just come out of the blue and try to share the gospel on a napkin with someone out of context. He doesn't just jump in with an idea that this person has never heard of. He doesn't just try to show and, and stretch his philosophical and theological muscles that he's built with years of study. What he does is he comes into the city and he sees a need and a place where the people are desiring to have truth. And he says, hey, look at this thing. Let's talk about that. Can we talk about this for a minute? This is really interesting. I see that you have this altar to an unknown God. And I know that as Epicureans and Stoics, what you pride yourself on the most is knowing the truth and knowing everything. So let me give you some insight on the God that you do not know. Because I know who he is. And I know what he can mean to you. Paul engages with them in a relevant way. Notice what he doesn't do. This is very different than how he's engaged every other group up until this point in the book of Acts. He doesn't come in and start talking about Jewish things. We've read all through the stories in the book of Acts how Paul's gone into uh, places where there's Jewish or God-fearing roots, and he's ended up connecting th- to things like the law of Moses. He's ended up engaging with people uh, on some of the ways that they live and they understand what is true from a Judeo perspective. But that's not what he does here. He doesn't feel the need to engage with from his starting place. He gets to a point where he looks for a place that he can start with them. So Paul uses 
something that's in their lives as a bridge to begin sharing the spiritual truth. First about God and then about themselves. So he says, let me tell you about this thing you're ignorant about, this thing you don't understand, this unknown God who's here in your midst. And then in verse 24 to 28, we read this, his explanation. He says, this is the God who made the world and everything in it. It's the Lord of heaven and earth, and he doesn't live in your temples that were built by human hands. He's not even served by you because he doesn't need anything. Instead, he's the one who gives you life and breath and everything else. This God is the one who took one man to ma- and used him to make all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he's marked out everyone's appointed times in histories and the boundaries of where they will live. God did this so that you would seek him, maybe reach out to him, and even though he's always close to you. And then Paul does something interesting here in verse 28. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. And he also says, we are his offspring. What's interesting is both of those things are in quotes because they were quotes from Epicurean philosophers who came before him. He said, hey, I'm going to take this unknown God and I'm going to take these interesting quotes that contain some truth and I'm going to bring them together and focus them on the God of the universe and what he means to you. Practically, what, God, what Paul's doing here then is he's taking things that are relevant to the people in need and he's constructing this way of telling them about the God of the universe, this creator. And then he's telling them about their purpose, one of these things that they're constantly wrestling through. He says, actually, even though you Epicureans think this is all there is and one day you're going to die and just turn into dust, you're actually here for a purpose. God has a plan. He's brought everyone to be where they're supposed to be at the time they're supposed to be. And he wants to have a relationship with you. He speaks to an inner need that's going on. What Paul is doing here is something that we might call contextualization. In this great city of Athens where people desire to know truth, Paul capitalizes on a felt need. The felt need is knowledge of something bigger than them. And he says, I know what's bigger than you. I know what will give you a sense of security in the midst of all this chaos of plurality. There's one who's above all things, who doesn't need you, who doesn't serve you, but is here to love you anyway. Paul shows his wisdom, again, by by connecting with all of these things. And I think that's helpful for us I don't know about you, but there's been times where I've tried to share my faith and I just don't get why someone doesn't get it. I'm like, okay, let me try this again. This is what I believe. This is why you should believe it. Please just grab a hold. This is really good. Trust me, it's good news. And they just look at me, blank stare. Kyle, I have no idea what you're talking about. I go, no, no, no. Okay, okay, let me say it again. I'll say it a little slower for you. God. You know, and they're like, they're like, no, I'm still not getting it. I'm, I'm still not getting there with you. 
And what I've learned in the time that I've tried to engage with people, particularly, you know, we, we talk about Alpha a lot as a church. One of the reasons I love it is because we actually ask people to ask their questions first. We don't come in to give them the answer. We ask them to ask their questions first because it gives us an opportunity to hear the questions they're asking. So many of those times where I've come to somebody and tried to explain the truth and got the blank stare, it's because I'm not answering a question that they're asking. I'm not addressing the need that they need to feel. I often come from it from my own perspective, and we all do. We all came who are followers of Jesus came to Jesus because we had a certain need and a certain set of questions that we needed addressed. And we found out that he addressed those needs and those questions. And we found that compelling and hopeful. And then as we encountered him, we came to life and we've seen our life grow and flourish more and more as we followed him. But my story and your story your story might be different. The questions we might have asked, the needs we might have felt, all are different, and those different things are reflected in this room. But someone, at some point, listened to the Holy Spirit and addressed those needs with us, or brought us into knowing the truth from a place that was helpful. You know, when you share, or if you have a desire to share the truth with someone, I would encourage you to start by asking them questions. Ask them what questions they have. You know, they, they, good chance, they probably already know you go to church on a Sunday that you uh, have this certain set of convictions and beliefs. Ask them if they, they have any questions themselves. Let them get on board to start talking about the subject. Listen to your friends as you gather around a, a table or, or listen to your coworkers as you hang out in the break room. What are the things that they're struggling with? What are the things that are going on in their lives that are leaving them empty and hurting? You know, it's really hard to come at somebody with a whole bunch of apologetic reasons for why they should trust in Jesus and why we can trust the Bible because of textual criticism when they're sitting over here lonely and isolated, distant from their family, hurting. All that other stuff is true, but it's not meeting me where I'm at in my seat right here in that room. I need to know that there's someone who loves me, that there's someone who cares for me, that there is something bigger than just myself spinning around with a whole bunch of other people on a planet till I die and turn into worm food. I don't need answers of reason and intellectual integrity I need to know the truth about God's love for me. Likewise, you might have someone over here who feels absolutely full of life. Things are going good. My family's healthy. Things are working together. My career's in the right place. But for some reason, this worldview is just leaving me hollow brought me all the success that I could possibly want and I've still got that nag inside my soul. There's Jim Carrey who once said, he said, I wish everyone would experience the fame and fortune that I have so that they would know that you're still left with a hole at the end of it. To come to that person and 
and to tell them certain things is not going to meet their need. They need to know why or where to find a more compelling worldview. They need to have some connection made that will help them find peace, even though everything they thought would bring it has fallen short. This is the hardest part about sharing the truth. The hardest part about convincing people to follow Jesus isn't actually the Jesus part. Jesus is pretty great. And Jesus is actually the answer to any one of the problems that any person on this planet has. He's the one who created us. He's the one who's worked to redeem us. He's the one who's one day going to create a new heaven and new earth and bring everything back into how it should be in good working order. And so he knows the answer. And we can compel people towards the answer if only we would listen to their questions and what they need. I'd encourage you this week, listen to a friend. Ask them what's tugging at their heartstring, what's bothering them, what the thing is that's weighing most on their mind, and look for clues. If you want to think more systemically and what we can do to reach our city, I would encourage you to pick up the Abbey News. Read the articles and stories and hear what's going on in the journalists' lives and the things that they think are compelling and will bring people joy in our city. And look for where those things are actually not following through. This is the most compelling way that I know how, and I think that Paul knew how, to share the good news of Jesus. And then I would encourage you to do one more thing. And this is a thing that Paul does time and time again. And I have so much respect for him because it's so hard to do. And that's that he offers the kindness of God. There's this passage in Romans that says, the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. It tells us that we are all been ignorant of what we have done and how we've gone against God and how we've caused problems and how our sin has created brokenness in the world. But God has been patient with us. He's been kind to us to let that go on to a place where we hit rock bottom, where that need becomes so big that we finally look up at him because we're always in his presence and say, hey, I need you. Paul does this so beautifully. He says, hey, you're going on, you're trying to see the truth, but you have to realize you're living in ignorance. There's a God who loves you who has a better worldview that actually brings everything together cohesively and try, instead of trying to hodgepodge all these different religions and worldviews together and, and you have to set up altars just because you don't know peace. No, there's a God who ties all of it together and he loves you. He wants to be with you. But here's the good news. Even though you've done wrong, Jesus chose to die for you. And even though he died for you, he rose back to life also. And because of his resurrection, you can be welcomed into his family. And because of you're welcomed into his family, your life will begin to flourish. And as you begin to follow the teachings uh, that he has brought, you will flourish. One of the things that so many of us fail to do 
is actually sort of pull the trigger on calling people to repentance. I've been there. It's hard. Because in order for us to do that, we have to get to a place where we tell people, you're wrong. But I want us to be careful in that. Like, don't just go around telling everybody they're wrong. This isn't a judgment thing. We don't have the right to sit in God's judgment seat and to condemn them. But what we do is we sit in and we know the truth and we point them to it. And we say, hey, do you see how you're out of line with the truth? Here's how you come in line with God. I love that Paul does this. We read in verse 29, it says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, right? He's making this connection with with what they know and what uh, this quote and what he needs them to see. He said, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. See what he's doing here? But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he is a set day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. If we really want to love those people around us, we have to at some point point them to this truth. That there is a God who has come, that he's died, that he's risen again. And that if we want to be with him, we have to repent. But notice that Paul does it in a kind and gracious way. And in a way that makes sense to them, that communicates truth, but also communicates love. Now I know there's some of us in this room and we're, you might be sitting there and be like, oh, I've been doing this for a really long time. <laughs> there's been people who I have been trying to share the good news with and it, it's just not going anywhere. Well, I want to, encourage you to trust in the timing of God, not in what you want to see. There's actually a really neat little thing that's in this story of how uh, Luke includes what happens at the end here. We see in verse 34 this little statement. It says that some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. You know, a lot of the times we want people to be saved on the spot. We want to just have a one-and-done sort of experience as we come and we teach them and they hear the good news and they're suddenly uh, having this moment where they're encountering God and their whole life is changed. And that will happen sometimes. But my experience is that is very rare. What actually happens is that people begin to come in and begin to want to hear and engage with us first before they come to a place of believing. And it makes sense. We live in this pluralistic context where people uh, have been confronted regularly by a host of worldviews. And so people need time to begin to sort of draw these things out. They need time to allow the Holy Spirit to to sort of sort things out and help bring clarity uh, to the things that they're wrestling through. And so what I want to encourage you with is this note that not even Paul the greatest apostle that there was was able to walk into every room and convince everyone to follow Jesus. Sometimes he had to go for the little win first. And that little win was for him to say, hey, why don't we just spend some more time together? Why don't we just get in the room and discuss this a little bit more? And then one day I hope you know this thing that I think would be so good for you. 
it's worth celebrating when someone comes to church with you. It's worth celebrating when you can convince someone just to, to read a verse of the Bible to you. It's worth us celebrating when we've had one more conversation than we had the week before. Because the truth is, we don't actually do any of the changing at all. God does. The Holy Spirit is the one who works in every single room. Yes, we get to partner with God. Yes, he invites us to join him and he wants to use us. But the good news is, even if we botch all of this, he's still going to do what he wants to do. And so let's celebrate along the way. Let's celebrate how God can move. And so I want to share with you a story from Alpha a couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, uh, two young women ended up coming to join us because of an invitation they received from someone in the church. And actually, it was a, a little girl invited uh, an older sort of young adult figure in her life to, to come and hear. She was just interested why someone came from the church across the street with this like invitation to Alpha. And so they came into the room. And what was really neat is uh, when they first came into the room, you could just tell they were really uncomfortable. They're like, why are we here? You know, especially the old, this young woman. She was like, I'm here for her. And, you know, and then as we began to talk, it was, it was really enlightening. She began to, to speak some of what she thought about Jesus and the questions we were explaining. She actually at one point likened Jesus and his followers to Charles Manson and those who followed him. I think under, the undercurrent was that we were all a little crazy and following this really weird and eccentric teacher. But as we engaged and as she heard the stories and as she heard people talk about why we could trust in, in Scripture and, and who Jesus was and, and why he, she, she, uh, he could be compelling, she came to this place where she said, you know what? I'm wondering. What is it? Because it's got to be more than a moral teaching for why people follow Jesus. That's worthy of celebrating too. This woman who came into a room of Christians, who put herself out on the line to say, hey, I think you're all a bunch of crazy kooks, was able to move from that place to a place where she was able to say, hey, there's got to be something more to the person of Jesus. I have no idea if we'll ever get to see her again. I don't know if she'll come across the street or if she'll move. I don't know if she will come to, to one of our next videos in the series. But what I know is that God is good and that he will follow through. The Holy Spirit did work to stir up a little girl who she cared about to encourage her to be invited to this thing called Alpha. And they came and sat down for half an hour and were able to explore and move from this place to think of Jesus as this crazy, scary kook to a man who maybe there's something a little bit more behind. Church, let's celebrate and let's encourage one another. And I would encourage you to follow through. Don't just hear these words. Don't just look at the Apostle Paul and be like, wow, that guy can do something that I could never do to. I'd encourage you to walk with God, to invite yourself to the invitation he has already laid before you.
that he calls us to be his partners in sharing the gospel. He said, I want you to go out into all the world to teach people to know me and obey my truth and be baptized in my name, and I will be with you until the very end of the age. So let's take up that invitation. Let's go out into our community that's struggling with all these different worldviews, struggling with all these idols that are leaving lives empty. And let's lovingly bring them the truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. God, I thank you that you love us enough to partner with us. And God, I just pray that we would grab a hold of that and that we would take you up on it. Lord God, I, I just... I just pray that we would be people who would be excited about the fact that you want to use us when we enter into a room of other people. And God, I know that's scary, especially for the introverts in the room and, and the people who don't know if they have the right answers. But God, we know you do. And we know it's your spirit and it's your truth and you're working all things together. And so God, would you just give us the ability to be people with gentle hearts? Would you give us the ability to people who look at people lovingly instead of with condemnation? And would you give us the ears to hear where people are at, what they're wrestling through? And Lord God, as we go through that, as we uh, navigate that alongside of those we love, would no one in our community ever feel like a project? But would they feel loved by us, but more importantly, by you? God, I also pray for anybody in this room who maybe came to this place today with a different worldview. I pray that they would hear the heart that you have for the world that you created. I pray that they would hear the truth, that even though they have been your enemies, that they have gone against you, that they've gone in a way that, that doesn't line up with your truth, that you love them, that you want to forgive them, that you sent your son to die on the cross in their place, that you rose again, Jesus, that you have, are sending your Holy Spirit to work in us, and I pray that they would be able to receive that truth. Holy Spirit, come. Move in our hearts, not just our minds. And will we be compelled to live out your truth? God, I thank you for our church family. I thank you for what you want to do in every life here. God, I know that you brought everybody here for a purpose. I know you call us to our workplaces, to our families, to our friends groups. And God, I just pray that we would be open to what your spirit wants to do there through us. And will we be brave and filled with courage? And we, would we accomplish exactly what you want to do? We love you, Jesus. Please lead us and guide us. And we thank you that we can trust in the results because it's all done in your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.